right. Thank you all for being here tonight. Originally on the schedule, we had uh, this week and next week flipped. Um, this week was supposed to be relics and veneration, and Father Steve said, I don't want to miss that. <laughs> so why don't you switch it? So tonight we will talk about Christ the King, which is fitting given yesterday was election day and the entire month of November politics are usually on our mind. So we'll talk about the kingship of Christ. We will dip our toe into Christian relationships with politics, but that is such an ocean that we will try to take a couple sips um, from a thousand feet up and then, you know, kind of give an overview there. But we will um, especially talk about the kingship of Christ. So the last Sunday before Advent is Christ the King Sunday. It used to be the Sunday around All Souls Day. So it used to be more toward the end of October or early November. It's kind of now been pushed to the end of November, but the entire month of November kind of has this affiliation with Christ the King. So it's still fitting that we're doing it this week instead of in a couple of weeks when it actually falls on our liturgical calendar. But you'll notice in the Book of Common Prayer, there is no explicit reference to Christ the King like there was in older prayer books. But the last collect, um, Proper 29, the Sunday closest to November 23rd, it's the same collect for Christ the King. Um, they just call it Proper 29 now. So absolutely fitting that we still call it Christ the King. You'll hear when we pray the collect in a second, it's clearly about Jesus Christ as King. Um, the summer, uh, 33 usually-ish weeks in the ordinary time. If you actually you know, look at their traditional calendar, it's supposed to kind of mirror the life of Jesus on earth. So we you know, kind of follow his life in the liturgical calendar with Advent and his birth, follow him into Lent um, with his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And then summer's supposed to be kind of the lively time. Summer things are growing and we live into the life of the church um, after Pentecost. And we kind of follow that to its trajectory and then we get ready to start it all over again. So the last thing we do before we kind of hit reset each year is take a moment to look at Christ as king over the entire universe. And so that's kind of how we close out our liturgical year every year. So let us pray the Collect for Christ the King. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in thy well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So right off the bat, before we actually get into scripture and then tradition and reason, um, I want to draw your attention to in that collect, I think there's something interesting here that we will kind of carry with us for the rest of the night. Jesus Christ's role as king is unlike all the earthly kings. His role as Lord is unlike all the other lords. And that's a, a theme that we will carry with us tonight. But notice what it's saying in the collect that we who are divided and enslaved by sin may actually be freed by being brought together under his rule. There's, there's an element at which, while we're here on earth, being subject to a rule feels like slavery. I mean, that's kind of how we define it. You are fulfilling the will of somebody else. When we talk about Jesus Christ as king, that is actually where we find our freedom because Jesus Christ's role as king and Lord is not um, analogous to earthly kings. They are deficient examples of kings and lords. And we'll, we'll talk about that, especially in the scriptures. But 
We have to be careful when we talk about Christ the King. I think it makes people uncomfortable because we all can think of kings or tyrants or rulers that we find oppressive or that objectively are oppressive and we kind of get uncomfortable. Why would we want Christ to be aligned with that? Um, so we'll try our best to stop before we make that comparison because the whole point of Jesus Christ's role as king is that he is beyond all other kings. His kingdom is a kingdom of heaven. His kingdom is not of this world, as we'll see in the scriptures. That you know, separation gets, gets driven over and over and over and again in the scriptures, that Jesus Christ is not a king like Caesar was. He is not a king even like Solomon or David was. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is what they all hope to be. So we'll keep that idea um, that freedom is actually found in subjection to Christ's role as king with us throughout the night. But the first thing we'll do, like every week, is scripture. And we are going to look at John 18. Um, if you have a Bible or an app here, you're welcome to open to it. But we will look at John 18. And if you know the Gospel of John well, you'll know this is end of the Gospel. This is actually Jesus in Pilate's conversation. So if Jesus has been arrested and brought before Pilate, he is kind of questioned. And there's this really interesting back and forth between Jesus and Pilate, and it all concerns his identity, his title as king. So we will read 33 through 38, and then we'll actually um, draw in a couple verses from chapter 9. But John 18, 33 through 38 is what I will read right now. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? There's a lot happening in this conversation. Um, right off the bat, we get this idea that Jesus is poking holes in the kings of this world. Um, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, you know, kind of subtly is basically saying, who told you to say this? Who told you to ask this? Do you actually care or are you just trying to kind of do your job? And the interesting part here is, is actually in the backstory. The chief priests, the Pharisees, have been conquered by the Roman rule. And the assumption when Rome would conquer nations was that, of course, they have their own little little gods and they have their own little rules. And as long as they, you know, pay their taxes and live peaceably underneath Tiberius Caesar, fine. So Pilate is, is basically saying, you know, they're, they're saying you're their, you know, you're their little king. Is that true? And Jesus, you know, is, is not taking the bait, basically. Jesus is going to immediately go to a deeper place. Um, and so he answers, do you ask this on your own accord? Or did others tell you about me? Basically, what do you perceive me as? And then Pilate, rightfully so, says, I'm not a Jew. I, I don't care about their, their local gods. I mean, this seems like 
something that Pilate has been drug into, and he's trying to figure out what to do here. But then Jesus answers, my kingdom is not from this world. And here's what he does that's interesting. He says, my king, if my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. What Jesus is doing here is recognizing the difference between earthly kings and the heavenly kingdom. What is he saying earthly kings have? Armies. He's actually locating something interesting that if this is an earthly kingdom, how do you maintain your kingdom? You have to defend the threats. You have to fight against all the threats. If I was a king of the Jews and that this kingdom was an earthly kingdom, they would all be fighting for me right now. But remember, who's, who's with him? Everyone's abandoned him. Jesus is all alone and his followers are watching from a distance and, and Jesus you know, knows what is about to happen and what he is fulfilling. But, but that's what he's doing. He's saying, this isn't an earthly kingdom that I speak of. If my kingdom were from this world, yeah, there'd be people fighting left and right. Because earthly kingdoms are oriented around the will of the ruler. The king's will, the king takes, and we'll see this when we flip back to the Old Testament in a second, but you know, all of the earthly kingdoms are the king setting his will and then decreeing armies to fight for that will. I mean, there's this really interesting idea of the king that never sleeps when they talk about kings in the scriptures because the, the servants, the armies, are extensions of the king. And so there, are, there is never a time in which the king's will rests. There's never a time in which you can you know, sneak in and defeat the kingdom because it's always awake. I mean, those are the strength of the kingdom. So Jesus is kind of highlighting this is not an earthly kingdom. This is something different. And then Pilate you know, says, okay, so you are a king. You just, you just admitted it. My kingdom is not from this world. And Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. And again, he's highlighting a difference here. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is built on truth, the truth. And, you know, the, the assumption is that he's also saying the earthly kingdoms are built on lies, are built on things that do not last, on temporal things, on not eternal truths. And then Pilate, in this um, kind of famous phrase, says, what is truth? And Pilate cuts even deeper to something. Now, I want to pause here before we um, look at a couple verses in 19 and go back to the Old Testament. And, and you don't necessarily have to flip here, but all the way back in 1 Samuel, do you remember why Israel demands a king? So they have the judges, Samuel's the last judge, and then they come to Samuel and demand a king. Do you remember why? Specific, yes, and specifically how? Yes. Yeah, yes, they do say we want to be like everyone else. And there's, there's something specific about what they want to have like everyone else. So this is 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So right off the bat, this is a idolatry question. They're not saying we don't want to judge. They're saying we don't want God as our king. So God is kind of reassuring Samuel, it's not your fault. They've rejected me because they've had a king. God has been their king. Um, he has kind of been clear about that. And they say, no, we don't want you because that's the heavenly kingdom. That is not the earthly kingdom. What does the earthly kingdom have? Listen to this. 
So God basically says, now then listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God tells Samuel, you're going to go and tell them what's an earthly king. This is what they want. So tell them kind of like a contract. Hey, here's what you, here's what you're getting into. So when you come whining back to me, I told you from the beginning, this is what it's going to be. I mean, parents do that with kids all the time. Fine. You think you want this? This is what's going to happen. And then that happens. And the kid comes running back, complaining that that happened. This is kind of what's happening. So Samuel reports to the people. He said, these will be the way of the king who shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of chariots. Okay, what is the way of the king? What is, what is the earthly king going to do for the people of Israel? Put them to work. Yeah, enslave the sons and put them in front of the chariot. He's going to make instruments of war, an army. The Israelite people are looking around at the other nations and they're saying, look at all of these armies that they have. They all fight for their king, their, their local God even. I mean, the kings were elevated to like a godlike status. And they are saying, we don't have that. Our king, we can't even see. So they want to be like the other nations because they want an army. They want material security. And God says, fine, this is what you want. Here you go. And that is the pattern for the kings of the Old Testament. It is a concession by God. Now, what does God do with the, the lineage of the kings? He brings his redeemer out of it, out of the line of David, David, the priestly king. I mean, God obviously is able to use this to bring out good. I mean, they're not thwarting God's plan, but this is a concession by God to say, I am your true king, but you want the things of this world. So an earthly king will rule over you. He will enslave your sons. He will put them in at his you know, basically acting as his hand in front of all the chariots. He says, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves, the best of your cattle. I mean, basically it's, it's, it's kingship, it's tyrant, you know, the, the will of the one um, rules. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refuse to listen to the voice of Samuel. So there you go. They hear what they're getting into. They say, we know. We still want it. Proceed. So that is um, basically, you know, Jesus kind of calling us back to, in his conversation with Pilate, the ways of the king. I mean, Jesus says, if I were an earthly king, I would have an army. I mean, that's, that's exactly what we read all the way back in 1 Samuel. That is why Israel wanted a king. And here he stands saying, I am not the fulfillment of their idea of a king. I am not the fulfillment of their idea of this material savior from the oppression of the Romans. No, he is saving them from something even deeper, from their sin. That's why he says, I, I stand and testify to the truth. And everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. The citizenship of his kingdom is not based on his single rule and his armies. It is based on those who listen to the truth. And that is why... Freedom is an essential component of subjection under Jesus Christ because he is the true king, the one built on actual truth, and in truth there is freedom. When we delude ourselves with lies, that is when we find ourselves enslaved to the lies we tell ourselves. It is not until we actually find truth that we are more free. Here's a, here's a good way of thinking about it. 
Who is more free, a two-year-old who you set in front of a keyboard and say, do whatever you want. Whatever keys you want to mash, go ahead, do it. Or a concert pianist who has labored under the direction of a teacher for 50 years and now sits in front of a piano. It's the concert pianist. He can play Beethoven. He can play Bach. He actually has subjected himself to a rule, to that truth, and now he actually finds himself more free than the two-year-old who, for all intents and purposes, is as free as it can be. Nobody's ever taught them anything. They can do whatever they want. It is straight up their own will, their own desire controlling them. The concert pianist has actually been subjected to a law, to a rule, to music theory, to a teacher. But now he finds himself more free than the two-year-old because in that subjection, in that law, he has found the truth, the truth of music, the truth of that piano, and he can do more with it. That is what Jesus is saying, is, is that in this truth you will find freedom because you will understand what it actually is to be a human. You will understand what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of God. So what does Christ change? Let's talk a little bit about the law. Um, who is given the law in the Old Testament? Moses. Moses. And who creates the law? God. And that's important that, you know, Moses, and this is some of the people's um, downfall, is that they end up elevating Moses so that when he goes up on Sinai and disappears for a few days, what do they do? They make an idol, not to replace God, but to replace Moses. And if you look in the verses in there, they actually say, we've made an idol because our, our, our leader, Moses, we have not found where he could be. They end up assigning Moses. They are constantly craving this earthly, you know, God-like figure. And God says, no, he's just simply giving what I have already given you. So God gives the law and the Old Testament, um, the Israelite people are constantly taught the law. It, is, it, is, it separates them, and we've talked about this um, when we did our leprosy series. There are purity laws, there are moral laws, there are ceremonial laws, but all of it comes from God. When Christ shows up, he says, I have not come to change the law, but to fulfill it. And we see like on the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus says, you've heard it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, if you have been angry at your brother, or if you have hated your brother, you are guilty of murder. And there's a tendency to see Jesus as making the law harder when he says things like that, as saying, gosh, you know, I, I cannot murder someone. Look, the bar is low for that. But hatred, that's, that's a little bit harder for me to do. But I think the actual application of that is that Jesus is showing us the grace to actually get to the root of these problems. He is saying, it's not just about the outward action in all of these laws that he makes. It's about the internal or the internalization of the law. Don't murder is the end goal, but don't even hate. And then the murder will take care of itself. You know, you've heard it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then Jesus goes on to correct a lot of these Old Testament laws. What he's saying is that's the end result, but start with the heart change and the rest will take care of itself. Jesus is saying that the grace necessary to become virtuous people who fulfill the law is actually here, present. That's why Jesus constantly in the Gospel of Matthew is walking around saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is like this, or the kingdom of heaven is like this. And he tells these parables, and then he always says, the kingdom of heaven is here. He is announcing this new idea of viewing oneself, not as subject to an earthly king, but as a citizen of heaven. And this is not a material 
This is not a material kingdom. This is not, um, and, we'll, and we'll talk about this um, by looking at uh, Jesus and Caesar, but this is not a material kingdom where you, know, you, you pay physical taxes, but this is in a, a heavenly kingdom where you actually subject yourself to the one true ruler in the truth and you find yourself in that. So um, skipping ahead a little bit because um, I want to make sure we get to all three of our topics. But in 1915, um, this is where, let me find my place. We are back to, there it is. Uh, We're back to John. And so Pilate has this conversation with Jesus. And if if you remember the story, you know, the Jews are standing there saying, crucify him, crucify him. And, And the chief priests who ideally are supposed to be following this Old Testament law, where we have in it this idea that, you know, we have the lineage of kings, but also we have this idea that all of those earthly kings always are serving God. I mean, David is reminded of this. Solomon is reminded of this. You have, you know, what has been given to you. I mean, this is very clear throughout the Old Testament, but look what happens in 1915. They cried out. So this is a pilot. He says to the Jews and he presents Jesus, here's your king. And they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but the emperor. So what the chief priests have done is looked at all of their history and they have said, doesn't, doesn't really matter. They have now aligned themselves with the Roman political power and the emperor, Caesar, had a divine title. Um, if you are not aware of this, I mean, uh, when Jesus, um, well, pause, we'll, we'll get to this in a second. But yeah, Caesar has a divine, a divine title. The chief priests have kind of given up on their own law. They have substituted God for Caesar. So last, last little scripture reference we'll look at. Matthew 22, um, this is the famous one about question about paying taxes. It's one, you know, politicians always like to uh, overanalyze. And if you actually look at like the early Christian interpretations, they actually differ from the medieval interpretations. The early Christians were still subject to a tyrant, a evil, oppressive ruler. And they started to interpret this passage differently than the medieval Christians who have Christian rulers all around them. You can start to see why this happens. You know, paying taxes to uh, an evil tyrant is a little more difficult than paying taxes to the church. Um, But this is a question about paying taxes. Um, So I'm going to pick up in verse 17 of Matthew 22. They're talking to Jesus. Tell us then, this is the Pharisees, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose head is this and whose title? They answered, then he said to them, or they answered the emperors. Then he said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperors and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. Now, you may not have caught this, but Jesus asked them two questions. How many questions do they answer? One. He says, whose image and what is the inscription? And they say the emperor's. Now you may think maybe that was the answer to both, but we have denarius. I mean, we have these coins still. We have archaeological artifacts of them. And these coins had an image of Caesar and then his title, son of the divine. 
So what is happening here is the Son of God, the true eternal Son of God, asks them, who's on the coin? And they, you know, don't want to give the title, so they just say, oh, the emperors. And then he says, give to the emperor what is the emperor's and give to God what is God's. Now, what is the straightforward interpretation of this passage? What is God's? Everything. Everything good. Everything, though. I mean, he has created the world. So Jesus is saying, look, take care of giving to God what is God's, whatever is good and true and just. And then this coin here, it's, it's material wealth. It's fleeting. Sure, give it to Caesar. I mean, Jesus is, and we'll nuance this here in a second, he's trivializing earthly politics. Um, he's not saying they don't matter, but he is trivial. They have come with this important question. Oh, look, the emperor, the son of the divine, what, what are we supposed to do with this? And God and Jesus says, sure, give him his money. It doesn't really matter anyway. But make sure you give to God what is God's, your virtue, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Yes. Since they sort of ignored the son of the divine part, would that like kind of force them to think about deciding who was the son of the divine and like who should they then give their money to? Yeah, I, I think they are kind of doing that. I think when Jesus, you know, asked them whose inscription and he has gone around claiming to be the son of God and they see the inscription, I think... A, yeah, and what I think he's doing is, is obviously that he says he saw the malice in their question. I mean, this is not a sincere question, and he is kind of um, kicking it back to them and saying, Here, here's your answer, now run with it and do what you will. So um, we're going to end with that because before we move on to tradition, because I think it shows um, an attitude of the early church in their relationship to politics. Right off the bat, you know, what are the early Christians' relationship with the Roman Empire? It's not a friendly relationship. I mean, most of our martyrs are in the first, like, 200 years. They are constantly being oppressed. And that attitude of kind of relativizing or trivializing the earthly rulers of the day kind of carries Christians in the first few hundred years. And then you get Constantine, and you get, you know, medieval Christianity, and the rulers actually legitimizing it. And they kind of have to stop for a minute and, and think, what are we supposed to do? We've been oppressed for so long. And you see kind of reframing of Christian understandings of politics. But we're going to fast forward um, quite some time as we move into tradition. And we're going to talk about Qua Primus, which is a papal encyclical of Pope Pius XI. Um, when he, back a long time ago, when he actually instituted the Feast of Christ the King. So, you know, Christ the King is a festival um, that the church basically said, we think it's fitting that there is a specific feast day for this. And this is his um, encyclical kind of explaining why. And so there's all sorts of, of good stuff in here, um, kind of talking about, and we'll, we'll hit on a couple of these things, but kind of talking about why does Christ have the title of King? Obviously it's in the scriptures, but why is it fitting that he has it? And, you know, um, Make sure I get his name right. Pope Pius the, the 11th says, you know, he is king because of the degree of perfection whereby he excels all creatures. So he is so much beyond our comprehension that it is fitting that we call him king. He reigns in the hearts of men, both by reason of the keenness of his intellect and the extent of his knowledge. He reigns too in the wills of men, of all people. For in him, the human will 
was perfectly and entirely obedient to the holy will of God. He is the best example we have of a human in his submission to the Father, in his love for all mankind. So he is, you know, reigning above us. He stands above us as this perfect example. And so it's only fitting that we have this title of king to call him. And I'm going to kind of jump to a couple different paragraphs, read some quotes, and, and we'll talk about this. Um, Christ, he says, has dominion over all creatures. And notice this, and think back to what we've already seen in the scriptures. A dominion not seized by violence nor usurped, but his essence by, but by, but his by essence and by nature. His kingship is founded upon the ineffable hypostatic union, the nature of Jesus Christ. Simply who he is makes him worthy to be praised and worshiped and hallowed and adored. This is not something that Jesus shows up on earth and claims for himself, like the earthly kings do. How do you maintain your will? You have an army, you defeat the lesser powers, and you know all of a sudden you kind of legitimate yourself. I mean, this, this happens less obviously, but it still kind of happens in our, our political system. We just don't fist fight anymore, thank goodness, but we vote. I mean, you, you kind of battle against your opponent, you gain the will of the people, and that is kind of your legitimation. But there's nothing by your nature. It's simply the, the outcome of the election results, and that is a lot less violent than armies going about it every four years. So thank God for that. But um, Jesus is, you know, rule is not to do with any of this. It actually has to do with his very essence, his very nature. Um, Christ is our king by acquired as well as natural right, for he is our redeemer. And then Pope Pius says, our very bodies are the members of Christ. So Jesus Christ has a role as king because of his nature. And what does that mean? By our nature, we are members of the body of Christ, meaning we are his subjects. We are called to live into, you know, his, his rule, his law. Um, we see Jesus gives us a new law in the New Testament. A new law I give to you, that you love one another just as God has loved you. I mean, that is the mandatum, Maundy Thursday commandment that we see. Um, he takes the old law, he gives us the grace to fulfill it, and he does fulfill it himself by dying on the cross. Let's keep going through qua primus. Um, Chap, uh, paragraph 17. So this is where I think he starts to get us into some practical considerations that then we can kind of tackle in our reason um, segment. Because right now, it's hard to see the mapping of, you know, Jesus's words onto America today. Um, and most of the time, we try to avoid it. We try to say, yeah, I got the scripture stuff. I get loving your neighbor. The tax, the tax paragraph, a little weird. I'm just not going to think about it too much. And then we, you know, we vote for whoever we want to. Um, but here's where Pope Pius tries to give us some entryway into thinking critically about the Christian's relationship with politics today. He says, it would be a grave error, on the other hand, to say that Christ has no authority, whatever, in civil affairs, since by virtue of the absolute empire over all creatures committed to him by the Father, all things are in his power. And then he says, nevertheless, during his life on earth, he refrained from the exercise of such authority. Basically, he wasn't going around conquering nations while he was on earth, even though he does actually have power over all of them. Every nation, every civil affair, and every person has to answer to the law of Jesus Christ, has to answer to divine law, as the church has called it. And they've tried to define that in several different ways. But the idea is the same, that 
Nobody is, there's no neutral sphere. I talked about this with money. Politics is another great example of this. It's not a neutral sphere. It still answers to Jesus Christ. Every ruler will have to answer to Jesus Christ because all authority comes from God and is subject to him. On the day of judgment, you know, we will answer for what we have been given. And if you have been a political ruler, you will answer, here are the decisions I made. Did they follow justice? Did they follow the commandments of Jesus Christ? Or did they follow material gain? Did they follow oppression? Last quote in this one. He says, in him, Jesus Christ, is the salvation of the individual, and in him is the salvation of society. So what Pope Pius is doing is kind of pushing back on this idea, and we've heard this several times, that, um, you know, individuals are saved by Jesus Christ, but, you know, societies, there's no salvation for societies. What, what the Pope is doing, very interestingly, is saying, if individuals are able to have their lives transformed, then what is politics? It is simply individuals coming together to figure out how to make decisions in groups. I mean, at its, at its base, that's what politics is. So if individuals can be saved, then you get enough saved individuals together and societies can be saved. Then laws can actually mirror the laws that Christ gives us. Then we can actually start to see truly virtuous societies. Now, he's not talking about a theocracy. Um, that is not that is not what he's talking about, because that's that's ignorant. I mean, the Pope is not, you know, ignorant of people who are not Christians living in the world. But what is the Christian's role? It is to, you know, so far in their power. I mean, Paul says, as much as it is in your power, live peaceably with everyone. I mean, there are these guiding principles that kind of give us the first step into then how we continue to act. Um, so going into reason, and then, and then I'll leave it for some questions, because I think we all have um, interesting things and, and points of view with this. I want to first recognize that creation is political. I mean, think about, so think about Adam in the, in the garden. He is given a charge to do what first? Take care of everything. Take care of everything. And, and as he's doing that, what is he walking around doing? Naming things. Naming things. So Adam is actually building a world. He is a, a creator. Um, he, is, he is joining in the creation of God, and God actually allows him to do that. So that when Adam walks by and says, you know, uh, elephant, his kids now only know that as elephant. He has, he has actually created an identity in the world so that his kids only know elephant. And then when his kids build something... Their kids will then only know it by the name that they gave to it. Adam is actually creating a world. And what is the purpose of that? What is, why is he supposed to till the garden? And what the hint of this is what does he lose when he doesn't follow God? God is supposed to dwell on the earth with him. Adam is creating a temple. I mean, that's the word we can use today. There's a lot of temple imagery in the garden. He is creating the house of God where God will come down and dwell with him. And what is missing Well, evil, but before even that, what is Adam missing? A partner. A partner, community, relationships, politics, this idea of coming together. Eve gets introduced to the party, and now there's two people making decisions. It's a little easy when there's just two, but suddenly there's going to be 10 and 20 and 30 and 40. All of a sudden, you have to decide, how are we going to structure society to make these decisions? Um, Adam you know, and Eve are the only ones who have done this in perfection. 
and then they made a mistake, and now we all do it in a world infused with the kingdom of darkness. I mean, Satan and, and sin and that sickness that kind of pervades all of us. But an individual exists as a member of a society. The whole point of the Adam story is that he wasn't complete without community. Politics for the Christian is not, you know, we have the examples of the desert fathers and mothers who kind of left society and, and formed their smaller communities, but, but that is not um, the call that we are all supposed to have. I mean, we're not supposed to ignore politics and run away and pretend as if it doesn't exist because it's hard to figure out what we're supposed to do. It is hard, but we have a responsibility um, to engage with the people around us, to try to build a society that is built on justice. So I've already given the, the two-year-old and the concert pianist example, um, and that kind of helps us, again, understand the purpose of laws and how they actually might make us more free. And then we've talked about the rulers of this world are called to participate in the good, um, to facilitate people living into their Christian calling. What is the mark of a, a good society? It's to make virtuous people. So what is the mark of a Christian society? It's to make Christians. How do we, how do we accomplish that in a secular society? Well, it means how do we make room to let us live into our Christian calling? There are some things that bar us from living into our Christian calling. Those are the things that we try to, you know, not include in our political systems. What are the things that actually allow us to do the things that God has called for us to do? Those are the things that we want in our political systems. And I know I'm being vague because the second we get into specifics, that's where wisdom and critical thinking, you know, actually excel. But there's also a point at which we recognize that we have different understandings, but hopefully the assumption is the same. For Christians, political discussion should be questions of how, not what. We should all agree on the what. What are we trying to do here? We are trying to live into the commandments of God and, and match our society as closely as possible. How do we do that? We may have some disagreement there. But our political conversations hopefully can agree on the what. What is our ultimate goal? What are we actually trying to do here? We are trying to facilitate virtues. Um, the last point I want to make is a quick um, quote from Michael Ramsey, who was the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury for a time, or sorry, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church for a time. Um, and he has this wonderful little passage, if I can find the starting point, and this is kind of, um, we'll, we'll start to close us out. And here we go. He's talking about Christian relationships with um, secular societies. And he, he's fully aware, I mean, he is a, a modern writer. He's fully aware that we have had all sorts of examples of secular societies. And the Christian relationship to them is complicated, to put it lightly. He says, sometimes Christians have been led to organize themselves in opposition to contemporary culture. Sometimes to try to permeate contemporary culture in the spirit of a Christian civilization sometimes to try to even organize society on Christian principles in the manner of a theocracy, and other times to escape the world as evil in flight, asceticism, and total severance. But whatever the relation, it is always the calling of the church to provide a critique of society insofar as society deviates from the rule of God and to point to the necessity of salvation under God as the cure for man's ills and the key to the meaning of existence." What I think he does well with this passage is remind us of the role of politics. Politics is not our savior. 
It is not. It never will be as long as it is here on earth. The kingdom of heaven is our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. And he reminds us of that time and time again in the scriptures. If I had an earthly kingdom, I would have people fighting for me. But I'm not. I'm giving you eternal life. I'm giving you something greater. The Christian attitude toward politics should usually be one of prophecy. We should always be investigating politics, critiquing it, locating the places in which it is falling short and trying to call attention to that. The way in which the early Christians did that was by simply going about their day-to-day -day business. They were persecuted, they were oppressed, they were martyred. But what did they do? They did justice to the concrete examples, to their neighbor next door. They cared for the widow, for the orphan, for the stranger, for those in need. They simply, you know, kind of to put it bluntly, kept their head down did the thing that they were supposed to do right in front of them. And, you know, the, the terror going on above them kind of was, was in full force. And they, you know, said the way we change the world is by showing Jesus to every person we encounter, to, to the neighbor, to the orphan, to the stranger. Um, I think the church is most herself, and this is not my original thought, a lot of people have said this, when she is crucified. This does not mean that we are not true Christians if we're not oppressed. What it, what it means is that the church is truly herself when it is inhabiting the role of Jesus Christ crucified, living into the way in which Jesus saves the world. Jesus does not save the world by overthrowing all of the evil dictators. Jesus saves the world by actually offering himself up to them and then showing that they are powerless eternally. Jesus Christ dies. Rome won. They killed him and put him in the tomb. And then three days later, they realized, not only do we lose, but we have been shown totally powerless. I mean, Rome falls 70 years later. Um, Jesus doesn't defeat Rome, but, you know, the society is crumbling. Evil, you know, ends up um, being beaten by good, I mean, to put it bluntly. So I think the, the takeaway for us today is when we engage with politics, we remember that Jesus almost has a certain element of trivialization to politics. It is not that it doesn't matter. It's just that compared to the eternal kingdom of God, it's almost laughable sometimes. And, and Jesus does a good example of, you know, obviously telling people, live peaceably. Paul does this wonderfully where he kind of takes the teachings of Jesus and says, you know, live peaceably, you know, be subject to the governing authorities as long as they don't disobey the law of God. I mean, you know, we see that example with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, there are points at which we do say no, and we take a stand for that, but that, that requires some wisdom, that requires some intentional critical thinking, and thank goodness we do it in a community. But I think the challenge for us as Americans is we, and, and you know, and obviously I want to, appropriately, you know, take this with a grain of salt. This does not apply to everyone. In my context, this is the way I usually see it. Politics almost becomes a game of I want my team to win. Um, if my team wins, I feel better. And if your team loses, I actually feel better about that. How often do we, you know, sit down for Thanksgiving dinner and we say, eh, not talking about politics because we're only going to fight about that. Have you guys ever fought about religion? At the, at the Thanksgiving table? Maybe, sometimes, yeah. okay? But, but often, you know, politics is the thing that, you know, you sit down next to someone, and if you find out they're the opposite political party than you, you want nothing to do with them. But if you find out they're a different religion than you, eh, 
it's fine. We're, we're both here, kind of doing the same thing. I mean, how often does our hierarchy kind of become a little inverted? How often do we care more about politics? And again, nuance it. Politics does matter. Jesus Christ does have something to say about politics. I'm not saying that's wrong. You know, evil tyrants who show up doing evil should be condemned, and we should do everything in our power to stop that. Um, you know, that's what, that's what the early, you know, Christians did with, with Caesar. Um, they were trying to take care of those who had been neglected. This is unjust. The widow, the orphan, the stranger, don't, they don't have food. So we're going to give them food because they've been neglected. I mean, they, they were actually recognizing the importance of political organization. But what was their ultimate focus? It was Jesus Christ. There was no, you know, wishful thinking that, oh, if we elect the right person, everything will be good. No, if we actually all turn to Jesus, everything will take care of itself. If we can save the society by turning them to Jesus, everything will take care of itself. Can we make in incremental changes? Absolutely. Are we called to make incremental changes? Absolutely. Are you supposed to vote for, you know, um, the person doing justice? Yes. Does that get difficult to decide who's doing more justice than the other one or who's doing less evil? Yeah, sometimes. There's not necessarily a right answer there. And there's a point at which we can say there are Christian disagreements of this. Let's talk about it. But again, the what should always be at the foundation. What are we trying to do? We're trying to follow Jesus Christ as the true king, unlike all of the others. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what every other kingdom is trying to do. And they all fall short. They all have fallen short and they all will fall short because they are not Jesus. By nature, they are deficient. Any questions there? Anybody want to argue politics? I'll <laughs> <laughs> we'll close with, with uh, this great quote. Our king wears a crown of thorns as he dies on the cross. That is our king. He is crucified on the cross, beaten, marred, spit upon, not an image of earthly power, not an image of earthly domination, but eternally loving, eternally calling us to himself, saying that there is more, there is something deeper, there is truth to encounter that will set you free. Let's close in prayer, and I'm happy to stand around and, and continue talking. Let us pray. Almighty God, King of kings, Lord of lords, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our true King, who calls us into a deeper relationship than we could ever imagine. Thank you for your Son, who is crucified, rendering the powers of this earth powerless, showing the deficiencies in earthly domination. I pray that we will never lose sight of you, Never lose sight of our true calling, our most fundamental identity as beloved sons and daughters of God. I pray that you will always hold us accountable to the law that you have given us, a law that sets us free as we live into it. Pray for each person here. I pray that we will all remain safe as we go into our homes tonight, and that we will all continue to do justice in the small ways as well as the big. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yeah.